Well, let's do this. Let, we, were in, we began chapter 18 last week in this part of John we're calling This is Love. We're seeing Jesus demonstrate love. We're seeing Jesus teach about love. And ultimately, the greatest expression of love is going to be at the cross. And so throughout these last chapters 13 to 21 of John, it just seems so appropriate that that would be the, the big unifying idea of these eight chapters. And so here we are, and we began last week in chapter 18. Earlier this month, we had this really unique opportunity to hear Jesus praying. It's almost this unique thing. If you've ever stumbled into a situation and heard someone just talking to the Lord, them and God, and you got to eavesdrop a little bit, that's what we got to do in John 17. And we saw Jesus pray for himself as he was entering into this last lap of the marathon. We see him praying for his 11 disciples, and we saw him pray for us, those who would put our faith in him because of the disciples' testimony. And here we are 2,000 years later, and that testimony is still being shared, and people are still coming to Christ. And we love, just love to be a part of that big picture gospel story. So we took it into this narrative where Jesus is arrested in the garden. And what we were impressed by <clears throat> is we were impressed by people, sorry, <clears throat> I got a little phlegmy over there, uh, getting love done so well this morning. Um, we were impressed by people who would be so close in proximity to the power and authority of Jesus, face to face and in some ways hand to ear in proximity with his power, and yet all still refusing to believe he was who he said he was. And we left him last week being arrested and brought to Annas' home, the former chief priest. We'll look at that today and about to be questioned. So we pick it up today and we'll look at the narrative and see what happens in Annas' home and Jesus being questioned, but we'll also see this powerful reality of Peter doing exactly what Jesus had forecast and the fact that he will deny he even knows who Jesus is three times. So we'll see that together and we'll kind of walk it out. I want you to notice as we look at this today, try to find yourself somewhere in the sandals of the story. You know what's to come, but those 11 disciples didn't have a clue as to what was actually going to happen. And so imagine your leader that you've been with these last three years, imagine him being arrested, him being questioned, and what you're thinking about who he is and what he's going to do at that point. We pick it up in John chapter 18, beginning of verse 15. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl and on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. So we see that Peter and another disciple, everyone had scattered when Jesus was arrested. They bailed out when he might have needed them most. Thank you, bro. 
And within that whole context, we see uh, Peter, though, now kind of from behind in, with a decent gap between him and Jesus and these arresting soldiers. He's following Jesus. The text tells us he's with another disciple, doesn't give a name. And some would say, well, maybe this was John because John really never seems to refer to himself in his gospel, but things like the disciple whom Jesus loved. I think there's a lot of evidence it's probably not John, it's probably not even one of the 11, but another follower of Jesus who simply was known and connected to the religious elite. And this person was so known, could be some have also surmised Nicodemus, but is so known that he's able not only to get past those that are guarding at the doorway to Annas' home, but is able to come back and bring Peter in along into the courtyard as well. So Peter makes it that far in, and this other disciple is the ticket to be able to do that. As he enters into this high priest's courtyard, he's questioned by simply a servant. There's a young woman, a servant girl at the door, and she asks this interesting question, you aren't one of the man's, of this man's disciples too, are you? And I don't know the inflection Right When we have our, our New Testament, we don't know how to read the tone in which she said it, but I imagined a couple different ways she might have. It could come off as either a demeaning statement, demonstrating even a trace of disgust. You aren't one of this man's disciples, are you? Or it could have been maybe said of just passive inquiry. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? Are, are you hanging out with him? Either way, we don't know the tone of what is said. We just know what is said. And no matter what the inflection, we see Peter's answer, I am not. Huh. It reads precariously similar to something we read last week when the soldiers said they were looking for Jesus of Nazareth. I am. Peter says, Uk a me. I am not. I don't know the man, he's going to tell us later on. But when the soldiers came coming for Jesus, Jesus didn't hesitate and he said, Ego a me. I am. I can't help but think that in John's gospel, there is not, there is meant to be some sort of play on words some sort of reality that Jesus has all the confidence in the world about who he is, and yet Peter is absolutely afraid of being identified with that man. Powerful contrast in this moment. And I wanna ask you a question I had to ask myself this week. Have you ever been in a situation like this? Have you ever been, you probably have not been where there are armed guards who could take you into custody as well, but have you ever been in a situation where someone has point blanked you? How, do you know this Jesus? Do you follow him as well? And you retreated from the moment. Some, some of us may have. I can honestly say I've never had that kind of point blank fear and confusion over what I should say if someone were to ask me such a question. But I will say this, what maybe some of us can relate to is something a little bit more like it. Not exact, but like it. I went back in my mind and I remembered um, my freshman year in college. 
And man, God had been doing a work. I had finished high school, and in that summer before I went away to school, God was just growing in me this great, intense desire for him. Wanted to know him, wanted to follow him, wanted to love him like I never had before. And I get there in my first semester, and I am growing leaps and bounds. I'm offering things over to the Lord I had held deeply to. I'm seeking him and pursuing him daily like I had never in my life done before. And what I would tell people when they would ask me, I'd come home on weekends, and they would say, Todd, how is college going? And I'd go, man, it is so good. God is so good and growing me in such rich ways. I'm so grateful for just the work he's doing in my life. And then homecoming came. The mighty T-Birds of Yukaipa used to play at U of R football games, and I got out my letterman jacket and showed up to my first graduated homecoming game. And I show up and I see my friends who are away at their different schools and whatnot, and we begin to start having conversations. And the conversations before that had been so thick with God is so good, look what he's doing in my life became college is so great, I'm having such a blast. And I remember in real time as I was sharing with people going, why is this coming out differently? Why am I sharing in one time, in, in one audience with other believers? And that's how I would justify it in my head. Well, my, my unbelieving friends wouldn't understand that. And I realized real quick, it wasn't that at all. I just was uncomfortable speaking so much about a Jesus that I really hadn't spoken much about with them my whole time in high school. I have a feeling, though we might not have done the same thing that Peter did, that there are examples in our lives that we can look at and say, you know what? I have definitely downplayed. I've definitely omitted. I've definitely changed the tone of the conversation because I was afraid of how that might turn out, afraid of what someone might think, afraid of how they might consider me. So I have a feeling we've done this a little more than we might care to admit. So in your notes, I have this question for you. When you get put into an uncomfortable situations, do you start communicating more like an atheist than like a follower of Jesus? More like someone who's just devoid of God in their lives than someone who loves him and follows him wholeheartedly? And the simple reality, it's a great look in the mirror kind of question, God, I want to be that person who in every situation, in every day, is consistently yours. Talking, walking, living the way you would have me. Let's keep going. Chapter 18, verse 19. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Bring in witnesses. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. 
Let's talk a little bit about this high priest language, right? Like, who's the high priest? How many of them are there? We first sent Jesus to Annas, calling him the high priest. Now, Annas is kind of done questioning him, sends him to Caiaphas, the high priest. We know they're related. Annas is Caiaphas's father-in-law. And going back into a little bit of Jewish history, we realize Annas had been the high priest and been deposed, been taken out of the role by Rome. There was something about the way he was leading that was either aggressive or in question and was taken out of that position, interestingly enough, by a pagan government, says, no, you're no longer going to be that. And instead, his son-in-law, Caiaphas, becomes a high priest. This is about AD 16. So Caiaphas has been doing this now for about 15 or more years. So the simple point is, the answer is Yes. One was the high priest, one is the high priest, and the former high priest has still a lot of clout, so much so that that was the first place that the soldiers took Jesus to was to be questioned by him. I want you to catch something that's easy for us to to miss. This is going on late, late at night, and Jesus has just been arrested in a garden completely without any uh, pushback, completely without any sense, well, I guess fallback, they all fell down, but, but without this sense of trying to run away or anything. And you would think, we're talking like two in the morning, you would think that they would go put him in a jail cell and tomorrow, first thing, we're gonna see what you're all about. Nope. In the middle of the night, they take him to some guy's house. And without any sort of, formal hearing without any witnesses. That's what Jesus is bringing up. You're asking me questions about what I've said when there are plenty of people who've heard me over the course of the last three years. And if this is a trial, I don't know what this is, but if this was a trial, you would bring them up to speak. You would bring witnesses before me. So Jesus is kind of spinning this thing back and saying, I don't know what this is. But the simple reality is if this was a trial, this would be done differently because you wouldn't put me on the stand. You'd put other people who've heard me and they would testify to what they've heard. So Jesus makes this statement. And to me, one of the most powerful things about this whole sequence of Jesus going to the cross, it's it's minor in terms of the physical pain he would experience, but it is major in terms of what leads up to it. But there's an official nearby that when Jesus makes this response, it says when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. It's one thing to slap an arrested man in the face for answering in a way that you disapprove. It's another thing to slap in the face a rogue rabbi, a fellow religious leader, as it were, a teacher, to slap him in the face for maybe seemingly disrespecting a high priest. But it is from an entirely different universe when a mere mortal slaps the creator of the universe in the face and doesn't get fried on the spot. I remember reading this passage as a young man and just that sentence just coming off the page. Who on earth 
does he think he is? And maybe most importantly, who on earth does he not believe Jesus to be? This is a powerful moment in terms of missing the plot. In your notes, this is a long fill-in. The official had no idea that he was slapping the creator of the universe in the face. And yet all the while, the God-man restrains himself from reacting justly. Justice would have been, uh uh-uh. Towards the being that he has given the very breath in his lungs. This is a picture of mercy, the official not getting what he deserved. The official not getting what he deserved, the definition of mercy. And the simple question is, what kind of God takes this kind of abuse from his own created beings? And you actually know the answer. The same kind of God that would let them nail him to a tree. This is love. This is the incarnation of love himself. Jesus responds to this pompous action by questioning the one who struck him, simply saying, what did I say wrong? Was there untruth in what I asked in terms of the question? And if that's the case, then tell me that and let me be liable for it. And what I appreciate is Jesus just kind of staying consistent. I haven't done anything wrong, and yet you are slapping me, you are interrogating me, when everything I've done has been out in the open. From there, they take the bound Jesus to Caiaphas for yet another round of illegal treatment and bogus questionings in the middle of the night. So on the march continues. Let's keep going. Chapter 18, verse 25. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, aren't, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it. Same phrase. Uk emi, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. So we're talking an on-site witness to what Peter had done. He challenged him, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Him being Jesus. Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. By the way, roosters usually crow. If you have a rooster, they crow way too early. You've probably turned them into a meal at some point. (laughs) But what? four or five in the morning. So that's what I'm talking about. This is the rooster crowing actually makes sense to help us time this a little bit of how late into the night this has been. Back to Peter in the courtyard being questioned. Other gospel accounts mention the idea, we'll read it in a minute from Matthew's gospel, that there was something like, some of us might go, why do they keep picking on Peter? Like people who don't know him, the slave woman or those warming themselves around the fire, why do they keep thinking you must be associated with him? And part of the text is going to tell us that men from Galilee had an accent. Men from Galilee had a look. Okay, You are able, as you're out and about in the community, to identify, I don't think you're from here. It's not a horrible judgment. You're not being unkind. You can just detect some things about the way a person presents themselves. Sometimes you're wrong. In this case, they were right. Peter wasn't from Jerusalem, wasn't from the area, and they keep asking this question. 
Either way, once again, he rejects the idea that he's one of Jesus' disciples. And I want to ask a question you're wondering, one that I'm sure wondering. In the upper room, Jesus levels this powerful prophecy, this forecast. Peter, you say you're going to go to Jerusalem to die with me. I say you're going to act like you don't even know me three times before the rooster crows tonight. Complete contrast. They couldn't be more different of statements. So if you're Peter, <clears throat> wouldn't you think upon hearing this, these words from Jesus and thinking, no way, you're so wrong, wouldn't you think he'd do everything he could to keep himself from situations where he might deny Jesus? If you've been asking that question, so have I. Just go anywhere you can to avoid the problem. If, if, you're gonna, if you're so concerned, I would hate to deny even know Jesus, don't be in positions where you'd be asked. And I wonder how many times that night Peter was thinking back about that conversation, remembering what Jesus had said and trying to do everything to avoid it. And I'm here to tell you, I don't know if he thought twice about it. Not because he was callous, but think of the events of the night. It has been a long night. It has been a powerful night. It's been at times confusing, other times affirming, and your leader has just been arrested. You're all over the place. I think it reminds us that all the knowledge, all the forethought, all of the understanding, and all of the willpower that we can muster that might go into avoiding trying to not fail God, trying to not fail others, it still won't be enough to counter the fear of being singled out and persecuted. In your notes, we need something greater than fear to conquer our fears. A fear of being, we need something greater than that. We need the Spirit's indwelling presence and power that gives us courage and boldness. We don't conquer fear by having greater fears. We conquer fear by the Spirit's work in our lives, transforming us with his presence, with his power. Jesus said as much about how they would testify about him through the power of the Spirit. Back to what we read in John 15, verse 26. When the advocate comes, another phrase for the Holy Spirit, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, what will he do? He will testify about me. So the Spirit's going to testify. How is he going to do that? Verse 27, and you also must testify. He uses mouths like yours, for you have been with me from the beginning. The Spirit's going to testify through you and the fact that you, your experiences, your firsthand testimony has been with me from the beginning. Well, and Peter has now denied that he even knows Jesus twice, but a third one comes, and it's not in the form of a question, it's more in the form of an accusation. Hey, wait a second, I saw you with him in the garden. I'm not even asking, I'm telling, I know you, and I know you were with him. By the way, you cut off my, my cousin's ear. I'm pretty sure that was you, okay? But I want you to see how Matthew retells this part of the story. Matthew 26 Verse 73, after a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Again, accusing, not questioning. Your accent gives you away. Remember I said there was something about the way he presented himself. They figured it out. Then he began to call down curses 
And he swore at them, I don't know the man. Note the violent denial that Peter makes to justify his position. Not just, I don't know the man, but he began to call down curses and he swore at them. The Greek word translated here, curses, means to call down direst evils on, to curse vehemently. And you thought there was no cussing in the Bible. (laughs) No, there is. See, I want you to get into this moment because it's not just Peter being afraid with being identified with Jesus. It's a full-scale cursing other people, a tirade for these people who are simply stating the truth, actually. They're not wrong. They're not lying that he doesn't want to admit. He's going to great degrees to disassociate himself with Jesus, something that will be brought back to mind now, immediately. Matthew 26, 74, immediately, a rooster crowed. Three times before the rooster crows tonight. I'm going to say this. You're going to want to stay tuned as we keep walking out this text. As other speakers come and finish up this great gospel of John into this next month. But I want to give you a spoiler alert. This is what makes Jesus' intentional reinstatement of Peter in John chapter 21 so incredibly powerful. Look in your notes. Peter goes to great lengths to deny that he knows Jesus, and accordingly, Jesus goes to great lengths to reestablish Peter as one of his own. Peter went to great lengths to deny, I don't even know the man. That means Jesus is going to go to great lengths to restore him, to bring him back and make him know he's his own. I'm excited. Next week, Trinity's own Doug Baker, retired pastor of 30 years, is going to be here to finish up chapter 18. You'll have a guest speaker named Steve Musto the following week, and then elders have been working really tirelessly to get this nailed down, but our good friend Rick Langer is putting together some Biola profs that'll be here, and they'll be here in this next interim season, including Rick himself. So you're going to finish out John's gospel in the month of April, and it's going to be a rich thing to see all this come together and realize this is what love looks like.